This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who have a lot of living yet to do, who want to enjoy the ride for as long as they can in good health and with a sense of humor, maybe a little wine. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. Nonsense. I would say something else, but I'll keep it clean for now. Aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome back, everybody. This is Rebellious Wellness Over 50, where women come for information that they won't necessarily find on the majority of websites out there. We try to go outside the bounds of conventional wisdom and bring guest experts with unique perspectives on health. And today, my guest, Morgan Adams, is one of those people. Morgan, welcome. Thanks for being here. Morgan is a holistic sleep coach, specifically for women. And I know from myself, my friends, my clients, sleep is one of those bugaboos as we age. It gets wonky. It is unpredictable. For most people, a lot of people don't know what to do. They try all of the suggested tips and strategies. Morgan is going to give us the whole lineup of ideas that matter most to women. I'd like you to hear her story first, how she became this holistic sleep coach. Yeah, well, it began around mid-30s. I was around 35 and I had a bout of insomnia that was instigated by a personal crisis in my life. And I just could not fall asleep. And I did not know what to do other than approach my family doctor and he prescribed Ambien which worked fine. It got me to sleep as it said it would, but it really left me groggy the next morning. I was honestly not really even alert until about lunchtime. So imagine spending a good chunk of your day with a lot of brain fog. I had several episodes over that period of time that I had like binge eating episodes at night, like didn't really realize I was eating and crumbs in the bed the next day and wrappers in the kitchen. Not good. We'll talk later about the impact of eating late on your sleep. Not a good thing, but it was just something I continued to take. I took the Ambien. I did not know of any other alternatives. And about eight years ago, I started seeing a guy who was actually now my husband. And while we were in the beginning stages of dating, He kind of called me out in a very nice way and said, you know, when you take these pills before you go to sleep, you kind of like your personality changes. You kind of become like a zombie Hmm. and it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. And I was like, wow, okay. Hmm, Note to self. So I took that. It got me thinking about the fact that these pills probably weren't a good idea for me to Hmm. take long-term. And so it was at that moment that I decided to stop taking the pills And what I did, because I didn't know any other way to do this, I just kind of intuitively just kind of kept cutting them down until I was taking like a fourth of a pill. And then I just went cold turkey. In retrospect, though, knowing what I know now about sleep and medications, I really wish that I had been under the guidance of a medical professional to help me through that process. Mm -hmm. Quite honestly, I wish I had a sleep coach back then, but (laughs) I don't think sleep coaches were a thing at that time. So... I slept fine pretty much after I got off the medication. I wouldn't say I was the best sleeper, but I was doing all right for myself. And then March of 2020 hit 
And like a lot of people, (laughs) my sleep started to suffer and I became very concerned about falling into that insomnia cycle again. And so what I started to do was to really hone in on what I should be doing for better sleep. I was on the internet doing research. I got an aura ring, which tracks your sleep. It's a wearable device. And I started kind of just tracking trends and changes. And as my sleep began to improve, I would just go on Facebook or Instagram and just share some tips that I had for myself. These are like, hey, let's all help each other out. We're all really struggling here. And I became aware at that point that a lot of other people were struggling too. And several months later, I had this revelation that I needed to become a sleep coach for women. I've had a very deep interest in health for many years, had two breast cancer diagnoses, have been through just a lot of health optimization opportunities. I knew in my heart that I was meant to help people with their health, but I didn't really know the direction that would take. At first, I thought, I'll be a cancer coach. And then, no, that's too heavy. And then this whole sleep coaching thing just hit me like a bolt of thunder. And I decided to go for it. (laughs) So that was two years ago. And spent a year going through multiple certification um, training programs to get me to the point where I officially began coaching people with their sleep last summer. And I love it. So kind of a long-winded story about how I got there, but it, you know, the stories are often not very simple. There's a lot of twists and turns with our stories of origin and how we arrive at the profession we have arrived at. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, what did you do before you became a sleep Oh, I, have, I had a lot of different careers. I started off in social work. Then I went into pharmaceutical sales of all things, which is kind of contrary to what I kind of practice now. I've been involved with direct sales for the past 10 years on some level. So I've kind of run the gamut from healthcare to sales to communications and marketing. Mm -hmm. As a through line though. I think I'm a natural helper. I'm a health advocate. And those threads have continued throughout my whole career. What did you find in your research subsequent to having taken the Ambien for so long? And aside from being groggy, you were having these night eating episodes. What else have you learned about the impact on women's health in general when we take these pills? I learned a whole lot. In fact, one of the best sources of information on this topic of sleeping pills is a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Mm. And he goes into it very deeply. If you are somebody who's taking a sleeping medication, you may be scared enough to take action. That's probably his point with his book. A couple of key things to share is that when you are taking sleeping pills, you are actually not in the most restorative stage of sleep. Your sleep is actually more of a sedative type of sleep and sedation does not equal sleep. You're not able to properly cycle through those cycles of sleep that you should be. Another thing is going back to kind of the whole prescribing sleep meds is that family doctors at this current stage have only been taught like two hours of sleep science education and their whole medical career. And so 
if you think about it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense because we spend a third of our lives sleeping. Mm-hmm. Yet, look at the the paucity of of education they've received on something we spend a third of our lives doing. The way our medical society is right now, doctors have very limited time with their patients, 10, 15 minutes. I understand why they just write a script for a prescription sleep aid. I totally get it. But in reality, the way it should be is that your doctor should prescribe a sleep medication for situations that are short-term, a crisis. You're going through a divorce. You had a death in the family. When they prescribe the medication, they should also be providing some kind of plan for when you'll stop taking the medication. Mm-hmm. An interesting quote from Matthew Walker, who I referenced earlier, just to speak to really what a drug like Ambien or another sedative hypnotic does. This is a direct quote from him. Ambien-induced sleep caused a 50% weakening or unwiring of the brain cell connections originally formed in learning. In doing so, Ambien-laced sleep became a memory eraser. Hmm. So I don't know about you, but I really want to preserve my memory. I don't want to go into all of the scary stats that he has because I don't really believe in the fear-mongering. But if someone wants to go look at that book and learn more about the detriments of sleep meds, I would definitely say, take a look. It's enlightening. As I shared earlier, I wish that in retrospect, I had had more guidance on how to get off of the medications. In my own sleep coaching practice, I am somebody who really does believe that we need to have a medical practitioner involved in that process of either stopping or weaning off, going to a titration schedule, because I don't want to practice out of scope. I'm a health coach, not a physician. So when we have the healthcare provider involved in that process with me as the accountability person, the leader of the process, things can go very, very smoothly. And I've helped a lot of women who have successfully gotten off their sleep medications. So that is my soliloquy on (laughs) sleep meds. Yeah. And I've read too that the actual increased amount of time sleeping, narcotic or not, is about 20 minutes for most people. They don't add like two hours of good sleep or any sleep. They just literally get another 20 to 30 minutes. Yes, that's, that's actually true. When they do studies on folks who are taking sleeping pills versus a placebo, they find very little difference between Mm -hmm. the two. What's interesting though, is that subjectively folks who are taking the sleeping pills think that the sleeping pills are helping them when in in actuality, it's not helping to a great level. It does actually help you fall asleep faster, but that sleep, you don't really feel like you're deep in sleep. You're just Mm -hmm. kind of, I felt very just restless And like I said, very groggy in the morning. When I've taken Ambien, it was when I was traveling a lot, West Coast, East Coast, and or to the UK. And I would take it when I get on the plane so that Uh I could get at least, not so much in this, you know, going to California was not all that awful, but going to the UK when it's a seven hour flight and usually fly at night and you get there really early. And I would take about a half of an Ambien. And Mm -hmm. I would go to sleep right away. But like you said, it was, I was groggy in the morning, which is what you don't want to have happen. Almost like I would have been groggy anyway, if I hadn't slept, I might as well just not have slept. But I bought into that idea that this is good for me. I'll get three to four hours of sleep. 
And luckily I never, at home, I didn't need them. I'm a good sleeper. And even when I've gone through, like you said, bouts of insomnia because something was going on and your brain doesn't stop racing. I've always reached for like the melatonin, St. John's wort with valerian, one of those things. Yeah. And that has always gotten me through. So I've been fortunate in that way. Good. I, I didn't like that feeling in the morning. Yeah. It, it's a strange feeling. And yeah. yet you're right. It's actually feels better to just be sleepy from a bad night of sleep. We all have a bad night of sleep. I feel better in that way than that feeling of the grogginess. You're going to be groggier either way, but there's a very strange feeling of grogginess after an Ambien or a sleeping pill. It's not unlike having general anesthesia for anybody who's had a general anesthesia. Yes. Yes. You wake up and you feel like no time has evaporated. Yes. And you struggle to kind of come to, Uh and then the rest of the day you're tired. That's been my experience. Mm -hmm. I've never Mm -hmm. felt rested after anesthesia. Right. It's very similar to the sleeping pill because you are sedated during anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And to some extent you are sedated after the sleeping pill. So very similar. So let's talk about what contributes to, and every woman listening can chime in and say, well, this is why I don't sleep, or this is what happens to me when I don't sleep. But are there common things that lead to sleep problems for women as we age? Well, you know, there are a lot of different factors. As women, we are actually two times more likely to have insomnia as men. That's probably not too surprising. There are three main reasons why this is the case. Number one, hormones. That's kind of obvious. There are fluctuations with our hormones as we age can disrupt our sleep. The second is that with anxiety and depression, those types of situations increase with women. We're just more prone to having that. And so when you have anxiety and depression, there can also be a bi-directional relationship with sleep. So they're kind of intertwined. And then the third reason is because as women, especially as we're in our midlife, we have so many social roles we're trying to fulfill. We could be in midlife caring for for children, as well as aging parents, and add on top of that a busy career. So we have all those worries. So we are definitely more prone to sleep disturbances. And there are no, there is no shortage of information and experts out on the web recommending products, some recommending a strategy. One thing that I've maintained for years and years, I don't know when I first heard it, but it made sense to me, is to have a sleep routine. Dr. Michael Bruce calls it sleep hygiene. So mm-hmm. that you do the same thing. You prepare your mind and your body for sleep. Do you have a routine? Well, I have my own personal routine. But what I like to share with people is that my routine may not work for you because it's personalized. But in general, here's something that people can consider trying if they want to. So it's called the power down hour. And I know not everyone has an hour to wind down, but... If you don't have an hour, at least take 30 minutes. So you may want to even start a timer to alert yourself that it's time to begin this routine. But let's just say that you do have 60 minutes. Your first 20 minutes of taking care of unfinished business, like making lunches or picking out your clothes for the next day. The next 20 minutes could look like hygiene, like brushing your teeth, washing your face, doing all those kinds of things in your bathroom that you do to to get ready. And then the last 20 minutes are leaning into the relaxing activities like 
maybe meditation or journaling. The definition of relaxing differs from person to person. A lot of people love to take baths before bed. And I highly recommend that as a practice, actually, about an hour and a half before bed helps your core body temperature cool down before bed, which helps you sleep better. A lot of my clients love doing that. They find it very relaxing. Now, I, on the other hand, don't like baths at all. I get antsy in baths. <laughs> I am right there with you. <laughs> to generally across the board say, hey, everyone take a bath is not a very good idea because yeah. not everyone finds baths relaxing. But the general gist of it is you need to find some type of relaxing activity to engage in before bed. A lot of people look at sleep as sort of an on-off switch. You just turn it on, you turn it off, but that's not really the way sleep is set up where it's more of a dimmer switch mm. that you have to just kind of gradually turn down. And what I find so very interesting is that women who have children will religiously have this wind down routine for their child, their toddler. The toddler gets a bath. You read a story to the child. You rub their back when they're in bed because you know as a parent that that child is not going to sleep in a very smooth way without that wind down routine. Yet we don't treat ourselves in that same way. We just sort of rush to bed in many cases. So I share with people, treat yourself like a toddler. <laughs> do those things that you would do for your child because it's going to actually help prepare you for sleep in a much better way. Yeah, that's a really great, that's a really great advice. I want to go back to your eating episodes. You said you would talk about why eating in bed before bed is not yes. a good idea. Yes. So generally speaking, we want to try to have our last meal about three hours before bed. We really need that, that window to digest our food. We want our bodies as we sleep to go into repair mode. We don't want to focus so much on the digesting piece while we sleep. Like, let's use that time for repair mode. And so I know this can be really challenging for people because a lot of our eating depends on social cues when our spouses can get home from work and we have dinner ready. But I really think if you can try to give yourself that three-hour window between dinner and bed, I personally notice the difference in my aura ring scores when I eat early versus when I eat late. And I've actually done a little mini experiment recently. And this is only because my husband's been out of town and I can choose when I eat dinner. <laughs> and this is based on circadian intermittent fasting, which is a concept you can read more about in a book called The Circadian Code by Dr. Sachin Panda. Brilliant book. And we're going to be hearing a lot more about this topic in the next couple of years. But in a nutshell, what people are finding is that when you allow four to five hours between your dinner and bedtime, you really see a difference in your sleep quality. This is just could be an experiment. I've been eating dinner around 4.30 or 5, whereas I might usually be eating dinner around between 6 and 7. And I can definitely tell a difference. Interesting. Uh, but, you know, the reality is that as much as we want to get good sleep, we shouldn't like be so super hyper-focused that we pass on social opportunities. There have been times when I've been out to dinner with people. We don't get finished eating until 8.00. 
and then my sleep is wrecked, but I had a really nice social interaction. So it's all about sort of that, those checks and balances and allowing yourself the opportunity to go off course for a social opportunity. I have a sort of a theory, a pattern of what I, that I work with women and it's called the power of five. The only things you need to have good health, really, it's just boiled down to the super simple. And one of those things is to learn to balance your blood sugar. And yes. I know that blood sugar can wreak havoc. Number one, we eat too late. Our blood sugar is high as it would normally do after a meal. It takes time for it to come back down. And that can cause fluctuations in sleep. Talk a little bit about blood pressure and also about how we can manage our blood sugar. Yeah. But it's a huge topic. So when your glucose is elevated, you can actually have poor sleep. And the opposite is true. If you have a poor night of sleep, you're going to show problems with elevated glucose the next day. So it's this kind of vicious cycle if it continues on. And there have been a couple interesting studies I'll share with you. The first one is about sleep fragmentation. So they showed that people who got eight hours of sleep but had disrupted sleep, they were not able to get into deep sleep enough and they had a 25% higher glucose value the next day. That's pretty significant. And then with sleep insufficiency, they had folks sleep for just four hours a night and their glucose increased on average of 40% mm. the next day. So essentially with that degree of sleep deprivation, they were seeing glucose levels that match those of a pre-diabetic so and it's not even from eating people listening. It's just from bad sleep. Exactly. And if you can imagine repeating that day after day, month after month, your blood sugar levels will never have a chance to return back to baseline, it would seem. Exactly. And another interesting tidbit about glucose and blood sugar is that from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot of clients and just people in general talk talk about waking up at 3 a.m. for no apparent reason. I'm using air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> and there are many reasons you could be waking up at 3 a.m., but a very, very common reason is because you have a glucose crash, which triggers cortisol and adrenaline spikes that wake you up. So one of the things that I help people understand is that to have good sleep, you need to be balancing your blood sugar from the time you wake up all the way until bedtime. It's not just focusing on the dinner hour and what we eat that few hours before bed, but it's really looking at what you eat in the morning. For example, if you're eating just pancakes in the morning, straight up pancakes with syrup, <laughs> that's what we call a naked carb. And that is going to raise your glucose level and probably will keep it high for the rest of the day with some spikes and, and dips that are not a good thing. Actually, 90% of people have glucose spikes every day and don't even notice, don't even realize they have it. Mm. And one of the things that I've been experimenting with over the past year and a half or so is tracking my glucose with a continuous glucose monitor or CGM for short. And I've done some pretty wild experiments. The company that I use is called NutriSense. And what I like about the company is that when you order your monitor, you get paired with a dietitian who is able to see 
what's going on with your glucose and can suggest tweaks and she can suggest experiments too. So I thought that was really cool because you get the coaching (laughs) built into the service. And so just for fun, (laughs) I would eat like an entire pizza for dinner and I would see my blood sugar spike very high and it kept at a pretty high level all night and into the morning and throughout part of the next day. I'm pretty savvy about what's going on with my body. I could feel that was going on. But for the average person who might have a whole pizza, they're having blood sugar spikes several times a week. Think of what that could be doing to their system in terms of potentially creating a situation where prediabetes is going on. So I think these continuous glucose monitors are a really great tool for people to use just once for maybe two weeks to see how different foods impact their glucose level so that they know how close they might be coming to prediabetes if they are. Most people who are pre-diabetic don't even realize it. They have no idea. We should mention that food for one person that spikes their blood sugar higher than normal is not necessarily going to be true. So somebody can eat grapes very little effect aside from the normal amount of sugar in the Yes. Grape. Some people can eat grapes and it's just like off the charts. Yes. I found by doing my own experiments that sweet potatoes raised my glucose like crazy. Wow. And white potatoes didn't. That's so interesting. Back up and tell, tell the listeners who aren't familiar what this thing is. Do you wear yeah. it? Do you puncture your skin? What happens? Yeah. So the actual monitor itself is called Freestyle Libre. It's a product by Abbott Laboratories. And that is gotten from a prescription. Your doctor has to prescribe that for you. And the company that I was referring to, NutriSense, they use that same monitor, the Freestyle Libre, but you can get it as a consumer. You can just order it online and they send you the monitor, but you have an app that you can download. It gives you very detailed information about what's going on. You can run reports. And with the Freestyle Libre, I don't think, to my recollection, you can see on an app some general numbers, but it doesn't go down specifically into like doing different food experiments and things like that. I think that's really more for people who need to monitor for diabetic reasons. But you do not need to be diabetic or pre-diabetic to have a CGM. I really do feel that everyone should try it at least once to get a sense of how different foods react with their blood glucose. But even exercise. People don't realize that so many things can raise our blood sugar. Oh, yes. As long as you have a healthy blood system, a healthy body, it's okay when it goes up. It just has to come back down in the amount of time that it should. But so this glucose monitor, is it something that you, I've seen it adhere to somebody's arm. Like, do you stick it into your skin? (laughs) Tell me. So I have a video on my Instagram of it it being stuck onto my arm. And people have been like, oh my gosh, that looks like it hurts. Because you think it's a needle. You think like the way it punch, it makes this kind of punch sound. It's louder than it feels, if that makes sense. So the thing that goes in your skin is actually not a needle, but it's like like a thick thread Hmm. that goes just into your skin. It's not actually meeting your vein. So it's not like measuring the actual blood itself. It's measuring, I guess, the 
tissue in your skin. I'm blanking on the word, but it's able to correctly assess your blood glucose without getting into your veins. Okay. Yeah. Like, like a finger prick does. That's kind of the old fashioned way to check your blood glucose. Just a little finger stick. And you wear it in the shower. You wear it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, showered in it, sauntered in it. Yeah. It stays on pretty well. Okay, good. And all of this to say, back to sleep, if we can manage our blood sugar, let's just say it's one element of the total package of things we need to do to get good sleep. Yes, definitely. That's definitely an important piece. And I know that you're a magnesium fan. There Uh, are lots of conflicting information Yes. From science about whether it does anything, whether it doesn't do anything, but tell us what you know about it. Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, there's conflicting evidence about its efficacy for folks who have insomnia, but magnesium is something that most people are deficient in. And so I personally take it because there's a chance I could be deficient and not know it. Most people won't know it unless they're tested for it. But the relaxation qualities of magnesium, I think, is what is the most helpful for sleep because it's not a sleeping pill, but it does have a relaxing quality to it, which I think is helpful for people who have trouble sleeping. Magnesium actually affects 300 different bodily functions. I take magnesium every night, not necessarily as a sleep supplement, but as just a supplement that happens to potentially help with my sleep, but it helps with a lot of other functions as well. And it also, if you have a muscle cramp, so if you work out a lot, you need to replenish that magnesium. What would you want to leave the listeners with who are having trouble sleeping? First of all, tell them where they can find you and then... Give us your last bit of wisdom. Sure. You can find me at morganadamswellness.com. And also I'm pretty active on Instagram. And my handle there is morganadams.wellness. What I would leave you with, we didn't really talk about this, the impact of light on our sleep and Mm -hmm. wake patterns. We're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the next couple of years with circadian biology. But the simple tip that I'll leave you with, when you get up in the morning, Try to get outside as soon as you're able to and spend at least 15 minutes in the sunlight with your eyes exposed to the sun for 15, 20, 30 minutes if you can. Ideally, you could be taking a walk, but if you can't get out and move, just sit on the patio and drink your coffee or journal or whatever, making sure that you're not wearing sunglasses because that light needs to hit your retina, which triggers your suprachiasmatic nucleus which is your circadian pacemaker to trigger all of these wonderful cascade of hormones that help impact and regulate your sleep-wake cycle. So what happens is that typically when you're doing this on a regular basis, you become more regular with the timing of when you go to bed because you become more accustomed to being sleepy at a certain time. So it regulates everything. It also increases your mood quite a bit. So it's super simple, but yet like so many people don't do it. If you wake up at 5 a.m. or before the sun, I wake up at 5 a.m. I'm an early bird chronotype. So I have a light box on my desk and I have it about 18 inches from my face. It's a 10,000 lux light box. And I sit there for about half an hour, just kind of getting that light, which helps a lot. So 
that is a great substitute. As I said, we have a lot to take in. And for people that are not sleeping well and want some support, I would check out morganadamswellness.com and see what Morgan has. She's product recommendations, information. Morgan, thank you very much. I really appreciate all of your insights. It's funny, I never would have thought of starting at the beginning of the day to affect something that's going to happen at the end of the day. Yes. Yeah, good sleep starts in the morning. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you again for being here. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Welcome, peeps. I'll be back next week. Be well till then. Everybody, I have a favor to ask. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you listen to, please leave a review on your favorite site for listening to podcasts. You can also leave a comment on my website where you'll find the podcast at the podcast tab or under any of the guest podcast episode pages. Thanks. It means a lot to me and I appreciate you. Be well till next time.